103B. Now with 1.2 billion subscribers on iTunes, Spotify, and GeoCities. This is the world's most popular podcast with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth featuring musical guests, Sting. Punch it, Chewy. An artificial intelligence algorithm reputed to beat doctors at diagnoses. Dr. Benjamin Habe Keynes of the Princess Margaret Cancer Center joins us to separate fact from science fiction. Star Trek Picard has taken off and Michael's feet are firmly planted on the ground. No, 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 they're not planted on the ground. He's nuts. He's wrong. Alan, meantime, isn't all that impressed with his stroll down Avenue 5, and he too is wrong. It was okay. It was awesome. And now, ladies and gentlemen, Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. So what? Are we talking about Picard? What else are we talking about here? Oh, okay. What did you think of it? Because I had an argument with the guy at the dog park today. What oh, did you think? That that can end well. Uh, it did not. <laughs> I, I, I was I was actually not all that impressed. Oh, here we go. Oh, why? Because stuff didn't blow up? Well, no. I'm okay with stuff not blowing up. But the part that got me was, uh, and this is a total spoiler alert, so and not that big of a one, quite frankly. So I don't think I'm I'm really going to ruin anything for anybody. But the upshot was was that Picard walked away from Starfleet in disgust over something. Yes, and so now this sort of it you're you're going to love this this analysis. Now it slides into the Star Wars universe in because you don't get the crisp clean world of Starfleet. You don't get the beautiful ships. You don't get any of that holier than thou attitude about advanced societies. Oh, here we go. All you're going to get is Picard trying to weasel his way onto a crappy freighter ship so that he can uncover the mystery that we learned about in episode one. No, no, no. This is a very adult Star Trek. This takes... It's so adult, it's Star Wars. No, oh, please. Please. (laughs) I'm just pushing your button. I know you are. I I really liked it. A lot of people say, oh, it was slow. Mm -hmm. Oh, it was boring. Well, no, hang on. It's the first episode of what will at least be a two-season run that's already been renewed, and we're dealing with a lot of backstory, a lot of character development. Character development? We've had, like, 40 years of character development. We have, but Picard is different. We've got new characters. He's. Did living... you notice they made a point of pointing out just how much older he is? The scene where um, he's trying to race, run away from the, the Romulans, and he's just, just a, he's an old man now. Yeah, he had a hard time getting up the stairs, I know. Couldn't get up the stairs. There's no time. Stay down! Well, he is, in real life, 79 years old. Um, so, yes, I can see that being the case. But, again, back to my, 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 my thesis here, is that we are creating a brand-new Star Trek world, 
and we have to bring in threads from many different Star Trek universes and many different Star Trek programs. And if, if you were watching it very closely, you would have seen a ton of Easter eggs that give an indication of how much care is being put into this particular series and how much care was put into that very first episode. For example, when we see Daj, first time when she's in her apartment with her Jaheen boyfriend who gets uh, offed, uh, there's a shot of Greater Boston. Did you notice the Ferengi logo on one of the Boston's... Um, uh, skyscrapers? No, I didn't, but I watched the uh, Easter eggs you may have missed videos on YouTube, and they were all over that. Okay, good. Good, because there's a lot of them there. I mean, Picard's new housekeepers, Laris and Zabin, you wouldn't know where that came from. But my, my favorite, though, as far as the, 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 the trekking nerds nitpicking away at Star Trek Picard was a guy who did like a 20-minute video on the fact that all of the ships were basically copy-paste from Star Trek Discovery. And he wondered aloud, for 20 minutes, why Starfleet would use 140-year-old shuttlecraft. <laughs> and then he goes through the mental calisthenics of trying to justify a 140-year-old model being ubiquitous in San Francisco. Oh, are we talking about the the shuttlecraft that we're flying around the air at San Francisco? Is that is what is that what those ones about? and the one that Picard takes when he goes to the Starfleet archives and he's wandering through all of the floatsam and jetsam from his career? Well, yeah, because those are archives. Those are those are models. But the from ship he went to went with to get to it was 140 years old, and so this guy explains, well, you know, maybe, maybe, just maybe. Maybe people were so keen on the 140-year-old model that the people who make shuttlecraft decided to come up with a modern-day version that just looked like a 140-year-old model. I buy, I buy into that. The Porsche, <laughs> Porsche first issued the 911 in 1963. They still have a Porsche 911 in 2020. It's still an iconic design, and it's been pr improved upon under the skin uh, over and over and over again. But does it look on the surface identical? Not identical, but very close. Oh, okay. Because this guy's claiming that they just copied and pasted the Discovery ones. All right, that's a, that's a nitpicky <laughs> bullshit thing. I'm I'm not happy with that. I I, I needed twenty minutes on that. No. <laughs> <laughs> Geeksandbeats.com, our A-segment producer Shane Alexander has come across a new study that made it into the journal Nature that involves artificial intelligence remarkably better at spotting breast cancer early on than a doctor. The team of researchers trained a machine learning module on x-ray images using about 29,000 women. And according to what Shane has written here, the algorithm outperformed six radiologists in reading mammograms. It was as good as two doctors working together. What the journal points out is that despite the existence of screening programs around the world, it's the interpretation of mammograms that is really the critical point when it comes to detecting breast, uh, breast cancer. It's affected by high rates of false positives as well as false negatives. So they wanted to see if you could train an artificial intelligence machine learning algorithm to look at cancer in early stages 
that maybe it would be more effective than a doctor to be able to figure this out. I've been following this because it seems to me that medicine being so complicated, there's no way that a single doctor or even a, a team of doctors, I've been watching House a lot, uh, could come up with <laughs> everything that could be wrong with a patient in a particular case. So you need to be able to access, you know, all the diagnostic tools that you can possibly have. And, and that's really hard for, like I say, human beings. One of the things that we think about when we think about artificial intelligence is that at this point, it's really not very intelligent and it's particularly artificial. What we're really talking about is machine learning. And the idea behind machine learning is big data, that if we have enough data, we can start to make assumptions about new data when it comes in. And this AI looked at x-ray images from about 29,000 women and found the algorithm was better at spotting breast cancer than a doctor. So they had a team of researchers train an AI model on X-ray images, and it outperformed six radiologists in reading mammograms and was as good as two doctors working together, Shane writes at geeksandbeats.com. The results were published in the journal Nature. It reduces false positives and perhaps also as important, false negatives as well. I wanted to get some insight into where we are in the world of AI fighting cancer. And joining us now is Dr. Benjamin Habe Keynes, the senior scientist at the Princess Margaret Cancer Center and an associate professor at the University of Toronto. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Michael. Hi, Ellen. Is this a fair analysis that we're really not in the age of AI for medical diagnoses? We're still in the very early stages. Yeah, indeed. We are in, in the very early stages. Um, when we talk about AI, we should probably make a distinction between two kinds of AI. Um, what people really see in the movies are more like general AI, algorithms that can really adapt and be performant for multiple tasks and in multiple situations. Um, what we do nowadays is really narrow AI. We design algorithms that are being very good at a single task. And the example that you talk today is exactly that. It's a narrow artificial intelligence able to detect cancer from X-ray uh, from breast. Okay, how does this work? Because we're all familiar with doctors looking at X-rays or MRIs or any other uh, diagnostic tool. Uh, and, you know, what does the AI see that a radiologist or an oncologist can't? So radi radiation um, radiologists and, and oncologists um, use their training and, and years of experience to, to basically assess whether a specific spot on a MRI, CT scan, or X-ray in the case of that article uh, looks suspicious, looks uh, like a deviation from normal. But you can imagine that those, those images, usually 3D, um, are extremely complex and dense in information. And even so humans are very good at recognizing uh, certain types of patterns, AI can dive into, dive, can dive much, much deeper into the images and extract quantitative information that, that human cannot grasp. So they, the hope is really for AI to detect patterns that are completely invisible to the human eye. But what patterns would those be? Oh, usually those are regions that are denser than they should be, that have uh, a irregular shape, uh, unlike uh, healthy cells. And it could be, even in the images, it could be reflected in, in a lot of variants, a lot of, of entropy. And again, humans are not really good at catching those signals, but AI can, can definitely use very complex 
algorithm to extract that kind of information in a very uh, time efficient way. Well, that's that's my next question. It, AI would be able to analyze these images much more quickly than a human being. Yeah, and I think that's really where, where the hope is. Um, to beat radiologists and, and oncologists with years and years of, of training is, is possible, but it's not really the goal, I, I would say, at this stage. At this stage, we want to make sure that we can have a very, very quick assessment of the images and pass that very quick diagnostic to the radiation to the radiologist or the oncologist so they can basically uh double check rather than having to dive into into the images which is a sometimes a very time consuming process if you if you have a cancer just to contour that cancer in those images could take hours or days while ai could literally do it in a few seconds so i think that's really the hope here it's not so much to replace uh, radi uh radiologists and oncologists but it's really to speed up their work and potentially um, for, the, for those uh, clinicians to also ramp up their game. Um, we could learn from AI the same way that, uh, I don't know if you follow the DeepMind uh, AlphaGo story. Uh, what I found fascinated, fascinating is that not only the machine started to beat the champions, but the champions start to learn new strategies from the machine. And I think that's really that kind of feedback loop that we are trying to create here where we can learn from patterns that were not detected before. Uh, but now with AI, we can learn those new patterns and maybe get better as humans uh, when we read those images. And with breast cancer, you're dealing with, um, a, you can have a lot of false positives and a lot of false negatives because of the varying densities in the tissue, right? Correct. Uh, and actually, you're, that, that's really, I think, one of the most important points of that paper uh, or at least when you read that paper, you should be aware that screening is actually a very, very, very complex problem. Uh, what they have tried to do in that paper was to detect cancer, but actually in reality it's much more complicated than that. Um, there are basically four types of cancer or four types of, of images. One that does not contain any sign of, of cancer because there is no cancer. One that um, show sign of cancer, but this cancer is so benign that it will never harm the patient uh, in her lifetime. And then there is the cancer that has already spread. And, and sorry, and then the, the third one are, are the cancers that we can cure, we can detect early and cure either by surgery, radiation, or, or uh, chemical therapies. And then the fourth, the fourth type of cancer are the ones that already spread. And, and those ones, even so we need to know they're there, there is very little that we can do for the patient. So it's really the third category that we are trying to catch, the cancer that we can detect early and therefore cure. And those are the ones that we need to detect, the benign and the non-cancerous uh, uh, images. Those ones should be classified as negative because otherwise we're just going to uh, add more burden, not only on the patient, but on the health uh, care system as well. One of the examples that is given as to explain how humanity became the dominant species on the planet is that our brains had a unique capability uh, early on to recognize patterns. And I suppose, by and large, that's what we're doing with machine learning systems. We're training them to recognize specific patterns. And 29,000 women uh, and the x-rays from them, which have been confirmed as being those of 
uh, breast cancer sufferers. That's the training of the AI. Uh, I'm fascinated, though, about trying to take that back to general AI, as you point out, that this is very specific. And, and I think maybe the first example of that in, in medicine that we really got was IBM's Watson. And the whole idea that we created an AI that was capable of ingesting the research papers of cancer researchers all around the world because they're everywhere and they're publishing constantly. And there's no way a doctor can be on top of the two to 6,000 papers that get published every single month. But a computer system would be more than capable of doing that. And if I understand correctly, Watson is now being employed um, to provide n not just the diagnosis, but the 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 solution to whatever the diagnosis is because they can do that system can do it in a much more efficient manner than just a doctor yes yeah, so the the really the hope with with ibm watson was was to ingest a lot more information than than any doctor could have access to however when the doctor sees the patient uh, usually there is a lot of hidden information there uh, the contact with the patient um, the experience of the clinician itself, uh, access to the patient health record, all those information are actually fairly tricky to feed the AI with. However, you can feed the AI with literally 20 million papers from uh, PubMed, which is a, a database of uh, biomedical papers. And then the AI can, can try to ingest that information of, of extremely varying quality. Uh, some papers are really good and have been validated multiple times, uh, but a lot of papers are either erroneous or have never been validated. So we, we are a bit unsure about it, the quality and the veracity of the information. So um, IBM Watson has been very successful at Quiz and, and Geoparty. Uh, however, in in medicine, it still, still needs to be proven that this hybrid can suggest better therapies than the clinicians. How long do you think it is before the amount of data that we throw into a system, and as you point out, you know, garbage in, garbage out, we have to um, audit that data. Um, artificial intelligence specialists spend a lot of time auditing data just to ensure mm -hmm. that the stuff that's coming out uh, is valuable because if stuff you're sticking in it isn't then you're not going to get a, a positive result but how long do you think it's going to be before you as a cancer researcher can lean on an artificial intelligence algorithm and rely on that data yeah, you you actually um hit it a bit of a pain point for, for researchers. I, I'm very sorry to say that I spend 85% of my time, or at least my team spend 85% of their time creating data before we can even do the machine learning analysis, whether it's AI with deep learning and neural networks or more simplest, uh, simpler approaches. Uh, so that's an insane amount of time that we spend just to make sure that we feed the algorithm with high quality data so it can learn something useful. Uh, so it's going to take a while um, for us to really understand what's the right trade-off between the quantity of the data we need to learn and its quality, uh, especially in healthcare where you can have very large quantity of sparse, um, low-quality data, or you can have very small, very complete, very high-quality data sets. And it's really, we, we need to hit a, a, the right uh, balance between those two components so that the AI can learn from a lot of examples, but also high quality examples. What you're saying is we're still at the stage where we're learning how to teach. Yeah, indeed. So we, we really, 
the, the, the healthcare system is full of, of, of um, silos of data everywhere and, and they're all important and those are data generated during the patient journey and are not always very, very well connected with each other. So I wish we were one button away from feeding the AI with all those data, high quality, validated multiple times, looking at the redundancy, redundancy between the databases within the system and feed the AI with those data so it can learn uh, very quickly uh, the trajectory of the patient, uh, of the cancer patient. But we are very far from here still. Um, some barriers are technological. How do we connect all those databases? Some barriers are a bit more, I would say, um, social and political. How do we protect uh, the privacy of the patient based on all those data we collect to make sure that there is absolutely no harm for the patient if there is any information leak. So those aspects need to be um, resolved before we can start feeding AI with a lot of data. Okay, and what do you do with papers that have contradictory findings? <laughs> yeah, for those ones, um, we basically need to have validation studies. And uh, they might, you, you might have seen some of, of papers, for instance, from uh, John Ioannidis saying 99% of, of the papers are wrong. Um, and, and that's, a, that's a, a catchy title, but there is a lot of truth behind that. Uh, when we do scientific discovery, we basically collect as much data as we can to test a hypothesis, but it's always very limited. There is always bias in, in the researcher trying to validate a hypothesis. So we always need to validate those. And it takes sometimes years for a very prominent paper to be validated in the hands of, of others. And it's not just um, validating by the same person. We really need multiple researchers to validate the same discovery. If only lab, one lab in the world can do it, that's not really interesting. That's, we can really call, a, call it a scientific progress. So it's a very tedious um, science. It's a very uh, tedious and, and meticulous uh, enterprise. However, with AI accessing all those papers, uh, the algorithm can start tra finding trends that have been validated in multiple studies and basically filter out all those discoveries that could be uh, artifactual. So this specific discovery that we're talking about here, the new study that found AI that was better at spotting breast cancer than a doctor, it strikes me that this very specific example is the kind of thing that once it gets, I, I'm reluctant to say perfected, but once it gets as close as it can really possibly get, it strikes me that this is the kind of technology that just gets embedded in uh, an imaging system such that when we scan uh, for a mammogram, when the mammogram pops up on the screen, the systems behind the scene will go to work, the AI will look through the image, and the AI will pop up with little more than a pop-up on a screen saying, I think we've got cancer here. Is that the ultimate applied artificial intelligence goal here? I think it's the first phase. Um, really try to help the readers, the human readers, to basically get a head start on that image. Um, so what's fascinating about AI, it takes tons and tons of high-performance computing resources to design and develop those models. But why, once those models have been developed, it takes only a few nanoseconds to run it on, a, on an image. So you can imagine now that you screen, you screen the, the breast uh, of a patient, and within a nanosecond, you, you indeed have a little tooltip saying, well, 
those are those this is uh, what the uh, ai is suggesting in terms of diagnosis potentially if the ai is interpretable you could say well those are the features why the ai think there might be there might be a cancer in, in that image so really human can focus on that on that region on those features and that could really not only speed up the process but it could also prevent uh, basic mistakes or or easy miss uh, that humans are sometimes uh, unfortunately capable to do we, we're not we're not as as robust as machine when it comes to work uh, i don't know eight hours a day we make more mistakes so the ai can really help smooth speed up and smooth the process make it more robust doctor thank you so much for your time you're welcome Dr. Benjamin Haidkanes is the senior scientist at the Princess Margaret Cancer Center and an associate professor at the University of Toronto. Thank you. Okay, so let me see if I understand this correctly. Um, you absolutely loved Picard. I found it a little disappointing. What did you think of Avenue 5 with Hugh Laurie? Okay, now with Avenue 5, I was a little disappointed in the opening episode where they basically set up the premise of imagine if the love boat met gilligan's island what the hairy hell is going on i need to know is the ship breaking down are you safe i am as ignorant as you that sounds rude i meant it to be self-deprecating i can't find my daughter she was on the bridge wearing the captain's hat okay well those hats are reinforced and they protect your head so Oh, you have the hat. Maybe I can help. I, uh, I was one of the first 30 astronauts to orbit Mars. Well, I mean, you were the 30th, right? <laughs> and the first Canadian to land on it. Okay, well, for listing accomplishments, I was the first man to get alcohol poisoning at Maplewood Middle School. Look, I'm sorry, I don't mean to be pedantic. You just... know what? I do mean to be pedantic. You're the head of passenger services, and right now we are not being serviced. So what the F-bomb is going on? She's very good at this sort of thing. We get great deals on insurance. I don't think we're covered for this. Yeah, you checked the box, right? Yes. However, knowing where it came from, Armando Iannucci, who gave us uh, the thick of it, and also Veep, uh, again, the first series, the first show of any series is all about establishing a narrative, establishing characters. Uh, I I'm not entirely sure how this is going to work itself out based on the premise, which is, you know, the science in the first one was not so good. Oh, so people... What do you so, mean the science was no, not so I, I, good? I'll tell you why. Okay. I didn't know you were an astrophysicist. No, but let's, let's... Okay, so you had one chief engineer and he dies in the first 10 minutes? No, okay. Did you miss this part? And this is the huge spoiler alert for the entire series, is that he wasn't the chief engineer. He was the captain. Okay, he was... And the that the captain was just a figurehead. He was supposed to be some sort of, you know, uh, Sully on the Hudson, Miracle on the Hudson type character. Like the guy who knew how to drive the bus, who actually knew how to command a ship, is dead. Right, and so now it's up to the fake captain to act Captain Lee. Right, okay, and I understand... And that, that's, that's your Dr. Gregory House character, which is perfectly played. I love it. Okay, so through one mishap with the artificial gravity... Yes. knocking everybody to one side of this giant cruise ship. That knocks it off course just enough so that the return trajectory to Earth is now three years. We don't know what it was that led That's to... what they said. It... I know, but we, we don't know if that's what led it to be going off course. Well, 2,000 people banging against one side of the ship certainly isn't going to do it. You have thrusters. I mean, you, you know, just because you're on a return trajectory doesn't mean it's absolutely perfect down to the millimeter. Are we doing a 20-minute argument here? 
<laughs> we could. Oh, please don't make me argue for 20 minutes. Like I, I could. I could. I, look, I'll take you to the mat. You, you, will you give it two more episodes then? Oh, no, no, no. I'm going to watch it because I like I like um, um, uh, Hugh Laurie. Um, and I, I have faith in Armando Iannucci because he has done two great shows that I just absolutely loved. So we just got to get the characters sorted out. What did you think of the discount Jack Black? <sighs> Since just after the dawn of time, man, woman, and animal have looked up at the skies and they asked the question, wow. And the answer to that primordial question is space and luxury tourism. Hi, I'm Herman Judd. I believe in space tourism, not just because I run a space tourism company, but because I genuinely believe in it as a thing. Or was that actually Jack Black? I no, don't know. no. Uh, what's his name? But you're right. It is. Uh, it is a uh, dollar store Jack Black. Very much so. As the the CEO and the, the owner of Judd Enterprises or something. Yeah. Now there, there's some. There's plenty of opportunity to go in a whole bunch of different directions with this. Far more interesting to me than Picard. Oh please. Oh. See, this is this is because you've been living in this Toyland, Fantasyland, Star Wars world for too long. You Toyland? don't Toyland. There's nothing more antiseptic than Star Trek, and I can't believe we're arguing. But this. you uh, have you've completely you don't understand the subtleties. I I can go through <laughs> the, the 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 Picard uh, premiere on on a granular level and show you how carefully this thing was put together. For example, did you notice the, the theme music? No, no, I didn't notice the theme music. No? Okay. Well, the, you know, the theme for Picard is very similar to the orchestral theme for a particular Next Generation episode. Do you know which one? Couldn't tell you. It's the inner light. That's with C Picard, who went and lived this extra, this entire uh, extra life on a dead civilization in 20 minutes. We talked about this last week. Right, you know. and, and One of your favorite episodes. It, my all-time favorite episode. And you, if you notice the, the Picard... Okay, at the end of that particular Next Generation episode, uh, Picard learns how to play the flute. And the Picard opening credits conclude with the theme melting into the Next Generation theme on a flute. all new episodes of Geeks and Beats Wednesdays on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. Or stream us live at geeksandbeats.com. Support the show on Patreon and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for a daily dose of the world's most popular podcasts with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. The Geeks and Beats podcast would like to thank the National Science Foundation.